Let's talk now about Roman Jerusalem, which I'm also calling Herodian Jerusalem. And for uh, people, for Christians concerned, this is the time that Jesus would live. And we'll talk just a little bit about Jesus and Jerusalem at the end. But we want to talk about Roman Jerusalem and specifically about Herodian Jerusalem now. Um, we just uh, left off with the Hasmoneans. Uh, Pompey comes to town and um, basically annexes Jerusalem for Rome. And here's a nice, we don't know what these guys look like, but here's a nice bust of them. So that might be what they look like. But just like Gladiator, he shows up and his Roman detachment takes him out. Um, here's some information. I don't want you to write it all down. This is a nice one to print out here. But I'm just going to take you through a quick uh, kind of where we are and how we got from Pompey in 63 BCE to the 40s BCE. Um, Pompey assumes control of Jerusalem, and he was settling that dispute that we talked about between Hyrcanus II and Aristobulus II. The Jews were fighting amongst themselves so much, the Romans just walked right in and said, oh, I'll take over. Thanks. Hyrcanus right. um, is installed as an ethnarch. What's an ethnarch? Ethno or eth meaning? What's ethnology? What's ethnic? What are we referring to? A certain race of people, right? So an ark, the ruler. So he was made the ruler of a people. He wasn't called king. He wasn't called tetrarch or governor. He's, like, he's the ethnarch. Basically, we're conquering you as a people, but I'll let you be the ruler of your people. So he's the ethnarch. And a little later, he named an Idumean. Now, Idumea, um, you need to know that in, where's my, that was my pen? Idumea is the name of the southern portion of the remainder. Remember, we have Mediterranean, Galilee, Dead Sea, Jerusalem here. Idumea would be this, this region in the south. So he's not really from Jerusalem. He's actually, they call him by different the name, Idumea, comes from Judea, but they were called Idumean. Um, and Antipater is his name, Antipater. And he's named as the procurator, not the procreator. Look it up. Procurator. Uh, and his sons were installed as the local rulers, including a son uh, named Herod in Galilee. Okay. So they grabbed someone who was from the local folks and put him, but he wasn't from Jerusalem, and they made him kind of the ruler of the area, right? So that, that way you're not taking one of the established elite in the area and making them governor, which is going to have all kinds of doubt. You bring an outsider in who is, should be more objective. He owes all of his power and all of his standing to the Romans, so he's more likely not to betray you, and he's going to keep both sides, Pharisees, Sadducees, all the different sects, in order because he has no loyalty to any of them. So it's a smart move on behalf of the Romans. You're bringing an outsider. You see it with school districts all the time, right? When you get older and you have kids, anytime a school district's a mess, they bring in some outside guy, make him principal. He makes all kinds of budget cuts, right? Cuts all these people. All these people who a principal from within the district could never cut because they all know each other and go to bingo nights and <laughs> stuff like that, right? Then they bring in an outside guy. He makes all these cuts. Everybody hates him. Then they reward that guy by giving him some really nice principalship and some really nice town, and then they elect someone locally to come in and be the principal, and then he can kind of clean up the mess, and everybody curses that guy, that outsider, but he got the job done. 
right? That's how you do politics in local school districts, right? So the same idea. You're bringing in somebody from the outside. He has no ties to the establishment. He cleans up the mess, and you reward him by by making him the king in this, or, or, or uh, at least a procurator in this regard. The other thing is, there's mention in the in the biblical text about this thing called the abomination that causes desolation. The abomination of desolation. This is another one of those things that just became a myth of its own. And anytime somebody does something, some atrocity, everybody's quick to say, ah, the abomination of desolation. It's this big fancy set of words. Uh, basically, it's something that's so atrocious, so un inconceivable. I do not think you know what that word means. It's so <laughs> inconceivable that, um, that nobody believes it. It's just completely sacrilegious. And Pompey, what he does is he goes in to the Holy of Holies and just goes in there. Right? And you can only be the high priest and you can only go in once a year. So for him to go in, it's, it's, it's as bad, if not worse, than desecrating the altar. Remember when Antiochus IV came in and desecrated the altar, sacrificed the pig, right, and turned the altar to Zeus? Pompey goes all the way into the Holy of Holies. By the way, we have this great quote from Tacitus. Remember Tacitus, who's a historian, Roman historian? He says, Roman control of Judea was first established by Pompey uh, as victor, he claimed the right to enter the temple, right? If you conquer someone, you get to go wherever you want. And this incident gave rise to the common impression that it contained no representation of the deity. The sanctuary was empty and the Holy of Holies untenanted. There was nobody in there. There was no nothing. There was no idol, no nothing. So this, is, this both confirms and causes problems, right? Because... Um, the idea is the Ark of the Covenant is no longer in there, but we have no problem with that because the temple assumed all of the, the glory, if you will, of the Ark of the Covenant. But it also kind of affirms what the biblical text says about it, right? They weren't supposed to make idols. The Holy of Holies was originally created for that, that Ark of the Covenant, and it's not there anymore, so it's empty. So he walks in there and he goes, what kind of religion is this? You don't have a god in here. Where's your idol? Which is precisely what the text was supposed to say. You know, what the religion to be. But this was, the, this was that tradition that there's nothing in there. So he walks in there to take down the idol, and there's no idol in there. And he's confused, right? And Tacitus records this. I guess the Romans, who had all kinds of gods and all kinds of idols, and things, didn't know what to do with a religion that didn't have an idol. Well, what do you worship? It was odd. It was just an odd thing. Okay. Then Herod the Great, uh, Antipater's son, Herod the Great, rises to power with the full blessing and backing of the Roman government. Antipater's murdered in 43 BCE. Obviously, he's an outsider. There's plenty of people who want to take shots at him. Herod the Great exacts revenge and comes to the front. He helps with the Parthian invasion. Remember the Parthians? The Parthians are uh, a people that ruled from 247 uh, to 228 CE in ancient Persia. So when we talk about Parthians, we're talking about Persians, the descendants of the Persians, which is now modern-day Iran. Iran. Um, the Parthians had defeated Alexander's the great successors, the Seleucids, uh, remember from Syria up the north, uh, and conquered lots of the Middle East elsewhere. So the Parthian Empire had revived the greatness of the Achaemenids, the, the Persians back in, in the 4th and 5th century BCE, um, and kind of were rising again, and they were a threat to Rome. So Herod the Great, since he's on, 
that eastern frontier of the Roman Empire now helped uh, hold off that Parthian, Parthian invasion, and for that he was rewarded and became the king of the Jews, king of king of this of this area here. So he took control of Galilee, Samaria, and the Judea, Judea. So the far north, the area just north of Jerusalem, and the far south became the undisputed ruler. Again, working on behalf of the Romans. Okay. Any questions? So this is Herod the Great's rise to power. Takes revenge for his father, proves his worth to Rome by holding off the Parthians, uh, and and comes to power. Uh, and gets kind of gets control of Jerusalem as a reward in 37 BC. By the way, those of you interested in learning Persian or the Farsi, the language today, you can take that in our department, the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures. You can learn Farsi, uh, you can learn Arabic, you can learn Hebrew, you can learn all the stuff that we're talking about here, you can learn in the department. Herod the Great was real. We have coins minted by Herod the Great. Uh, on the left here, you see a tripod with a ceremonial bowl, right, and text written in English language. Not Hebrew anymore. Right, Greek language all around the edge. And on the right, you have um, a helmet, right, a, a battle helmet with little earpieces hanging down. Now, what do we notice about these coins besides the fact that they're completely Hellenized, right? They're written in Greek. They've got Jewish symbols on it, right? They've got some palm branches here. This is, by the way, not a, a hero. You guys know what a hero is? <coughs> I used to own a pen. Did I put it back? You guys know what the. Turf. Uh, Alright. It's, it's a symbol, we'll look at it more. It's, it's a symbol of, of Christianity, right? It's the vision that Constantine see we're going to talk about it next week. Now, that's not what this is. It's a different symbol, okay? So Herod wasn't a Christian. In fact, I'll even put that on the test and make you tell me he wasn't. Herod's not, that's not what that is. What do we notice about the images on his coins? Are they graven images? Do we see faces of people or animals on here? So he is appearing, at least, to try to keep with the the law, the regulation, even though he's from the Judea, right? Even though he doesn't really have any loyalty to the to the Jewish high priesthood, he seems to be at least attempting to be sensitive to the cultural norm. No faces on his coin. And yet it does say what? Um, Herodu Basileus. Herodu Basileus. Can you see it here? Of, Herod, of King Herod the Great. In Greek. All right. So Herod is real. Uh, there we go. Herod the Great. Um, we were talking about the, the area that he took control of. Um, so Indonesia would be this area. Here's Jerusalem. <coughs> Jerusalem here. Indonesia would be the area to the south. Right? And then you've got Samaria here, and then you've got the Galilee up here on the Sea of Galilee. So basically, Herod the Great took over control of everything. 
Now, you do have this set of independent city-states of the decapolis cities over here. Okay, so this is whenever we refer to the, to the decapolis, it's these 10 cities, Becca 10, uh, kind of independent status. They kind of did their own thing. And you'll see reference to them sometimes. Um, Herod the Great was from Idumea, which means he was among the peoples that were forcibly Judaized. Right, so his family was forced to be circumcised, forced to Judaism. So everybody thought that he was superficially Jewish. Right? So the and he's not from Jerusalem, right? So all of a sudden you've got this guy who's working for the Romans, who owes all of his position and status to the Romans. The, you know, the occupiers, the guys that, that we don't like, if you're Jewish. Um, and he's been forcibly circumcised. He's not Jewish by choice. And he's collecting taxes and paying them to the Romans. So they don't like this guy. Okay? However, his knowledge of the Jewish tradition allowed him to be sensitive to the Orthodox Jews there at the time. And so they couldn't, they never really got to the point where they wanted to rise up and revolt against him. Now, they did. They oftentimes got really mad and revolted. And so Herod built a lot of little palaces outside of Jerusalem uh, to where he could retreat. And we'll look at some of those in just a second. What do we know about Herod the Great? He was king of the Jews from 37 to 4 BCE. I think we mentioned this is why we know Jesus wasn't really born at zero. Right? They screwed up. Jesus was born somewhere between 5 and 8, 6 and 8 BCE. Because if you believe the text, it, it uh, says he was born while Herod the Great was a king. Herod the Great died in 4 BCE. So you have this odd thing where Jesus is actually born 5 to 8 BCE. Might throw off your calendar a little bit. Um, what we do know is from, from many sources, he was paranoid and impulsive. Very paranoid, very impulsive. In fact, in Matthew chapter 2, this is a book, this is the first book of the New Testament, the Christian New Testament, we have this story about the birth of Jesus. And I'll just I'll just read some of these stories. During the time of King Herod, there's this um, there's this baby born, and there's a prophecy that you know that these wise men uh, see a star and they want to go worship and see who this new this new king is. And Herod the Great hears about it, right? And he asks them, I love this, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Now this is Herod the king of the Jews asking this question, right? Um, uh, we saw the star in the east and we come to worship him. When King Herod heard that he uh, heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And so he called these guys together with the chief priests and the teachers and asked them where is this new king of the Jews, by the way? I'd like to meet him. Right? Um, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to him so that I too may go and worship him. <laughs> right? And of course, the story goes on. They're warned in a vision not to go back to Herod because Herod really wants to kill him. And so they go visit Jesus and they bail. And then Herod, he, you know, they don't come back. And he gets upset. And he gets so upset, according to the story, that he has all Jewish children under the age of two years old killed which would be the sign of a, of a paranoid guy. Right? He wants to make sure that no little two-year-old promised king rises up so he kills all the babies. Now, is that historical? We don't know. That's what the text says. But it, does, it is consistent with what other people say about Herod killing basically half of his sons. Anytime he got wind that one of his sons was going to try to do a coup and uh, take him out, he'd have him drowned, or they would magically drown 
or conveniently be poisoned or killed at night. It's just a terrible story. I mean, he's just very paranoid and impulsive. But he was very effective for the Romans. The Romans tolerated it because he kept the Jews in place. The Jews were an occupied people under the Romans. They got one of the kind of a half Jew to control them. And he, he collected the taxes and he kept down the revolts. And that's all Rome cares about. You keep the tax revenue coming in, and you keep the revolts down, we don't care what you do. Now, what is Herod known for? Herod's known for his building projects. And so that's what I want to spend some time looking at here. What's one of the things you can do as a leader, especially when there's unrest, to really, really calm the frustrations of the folks? Yeah, give them something to do, or specifically, what specifically is something to do? Right? What was the famous James Cardinal line during during the Bill Clinton re-election? It's the economy. Stupid, right? It's the economy, stupid. Yeah, people for, forget about things. If they have jobs and the economy is good. One of the things that we know about Herod the Great is people always had jobs. Why? He was always building these monumental structures, mostly to, to honor himself, right? But he was always building. It was like a constant stimulus package for 80 years, right? Collect taxes, use some of that money to build a monument to yourself. People didn't really mind it. They would roll their eyes. But then again, those are construction jobs. And that's money going back into the economy. And so they never really got to that point where they just wanted to rebel against Herod the Great because he kept giving them jobs. Let's look at some of these. So we know that we, we found, archaeologists, not me, archaeologists have found Herod's quarry. Right? So you saw those massive stones that made up the Temple, the temple Mount wall. We found the quarry where they were cutting those stones on the west side of the Hinnom Valley. I'm just going to show you a bunch of pictures now. Um, there is now a model, a 1 to 50 model scale of what we think ancient Jerusalem looked like at the Israel Museum. Anybody been to the Israel Museum ever? Maybe a couple, couple of years? If you go to the Israel Museum, this used to be on top of a hotel, by the way, but they moved it to the Israel Museum. Um, you can actually walk around the edge here and actually see kind of what it would have looked like. So we're going to look at a couple of pictures from this, uh, from this full-scale model. Um, we've, I've shown you pictures of the Temple Mount. Here we have it looking um, towards the west, so the eastern side looking towards the west. And uh, is that right? No, that's not right. This is looking east, right? Yes, looking east. Pardon, looking east. Um, and you've got the temple. The temple would have sat here. What sits here now, by the way? On the rock. Um, and what sits down here on this end? On the store, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, good. What's this thing called right here? This arch that goes up into the... We have a study here. All right, I'll show you that. What's this area of wall called right here? The Western Wall. It used to be called the Wailing Wall. Wailing Wall, but after the Jews took control of the after the Israelis took control of the city in uh, 67, uh, they began calling it the Western Wall because they took back control of the city. Um, much to the chagrin of people who were living in, in the city at the time, um, the non-Israelis, the, the non-Jews, the Palestinians, are still lamenting the fact that this happened. But um, you've got the Western Wall here. We'll talk about the modern conflicts later. So, overall, questions about the modern conflicts. Um, you got this western wall here. Just keep in mind that the western wall uh, is not the western wall of the temple. It's the western wall of the retaining wall of the Temple Mount. I'll put it on the I'll put it on the exam. 
It's not the, this, this isn't still standing. This isn't the Western Wall. The Western Wall is this thing that Herod the Great built. This giant retaining wall. Uh, here's a picture of it here. Here's what I'm talking about. The Dome of the Rock sits right above the Western Wall. This thing's massive. These are people down here, right? So the Wakf, the, the Jordanians technically, uh, Muslims control the top of the Temple Mount, the Haram al-Sharif. And uh, this modern state of Israel controls the plaza uh, to the, uh, below the Western Wall. Herod the Great, you can see these massive stones. So this is the product of Herod the Great here. It took a long time, took a lot of labor, a lot of people got to work on this. Um, and the tradition is today, you can actually go up to these massive stones, Western Wall with the prayers in it. What you can do is uh, you can actually write a prayer and then you stick it in the cracks of the wall. And anybody can go in there, you just have to cover your head, men on one side, women on the other. And you go in there, you stick your prayer in the wall. In fact, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you don't want to travel there, uh, you can email or fax a prayer, and they'll print it out, hold it up, and stick it in the wall for you. Modern technology. Here's a model of what we think the temple looked like. Now keep in mind, the original temple, the Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, right? It was rebuilt under Ezra and Nehemiah, back in that period there, the Persians. I mean, the second temple really wasn't much looking at. Herod the Great basically redid it. And he was so sensitive to Jewish religious laws that he actually trained some Levites, right? So he trained some, some people from the priestly tribes as carpenters so that they could go into certain parts of the temple and refurbish the temple. So it wasn't like he was just sending non-Levitical people in there. He actually was very sensitive to the religion because he knew he had to be and sent them in there. They redid and made very ornate. So this is what we think it looked like based upon the descriptions in the Bible and the descriptions from Josephus. Um, this would have been the temple here. It would have been cut in two parts on the inside, but the Holy Boys would be in the back. Yeah. So this is the temple's, this is two parts. <coughs> the front and then the Holy Boys in the back. And then you have concentric circles. Eliada talks about concentric circles of holiness, right? So what you've got here is the Holy of Holies, where the covenant once sat. Then outside of that, you've got the holy place, right, which is inside the temple. And then you've got what? The court of the priests. Only the priests can go in there. And then you've got what's outside of that. In descending order, uh, kind of the, where the men can go, but the women can't. Then you've got the court of the women. And then you've got the court of the Gentiles. So you can see all these walls. So here's a wall around this temple. Here's another little front with the altar. Um, here's another wall around it, and there's another retaining wall around it. In fact, uh, I'll show you in just a second. We know, that even though it's described in the literature, we have uh, archaeological evidence of it. We found the inscription that says, basically, Gentiles stay out. Don't go past this point. So if you're not Jewish, you can't come past here. If you're a woman, you can't. Then there's a wall for women. Women can't go past here. And then there's a man, and there's a priest. And then there's the high priest. Only the high priest once a year going into the Holy Holy. Um, I'm, just, I'm just showing you pictures here. Here's the, the southern entrances. So this is from the south, looking north. These two gates are still here, but they're walled up. You can't go into them. Why? The Al-Aqsa Mosque now sits right here, and nobody ever wants tunnels going underneath their holy places. It's too easy to run in there and do naughty things. 
with explosives. So they wall this up, wall this up, and nobody goes through those tunnels. Now, we know what they look like. Somebody's been in there, because we've got a model in the Jerusalem model. Somebody's seen the very ornate paneling uh, and architecture that's inside of those tunnels. But you can't go in there today. You and I can go in of course, this is what it looks like today. Here's what it looked like uh, at the time of Herod. Here's my cursor. Here we go. Time of Herod. Now it fits. So here's your wall. We had some uh, Umayyad palaces built off the wall, and the dome of the pardon me, the Al-Aqsa Mosque now sits um, there on the southern end of the temple. Um, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to hear a million people tell you a million different places where Jesus did this here, Jesus slept here, Jesus spit here, Jesus healed somebody here, Jesus ate here, did other things here. Um, if, and I'm just going to be fair here, if Jesus is a historical person um, and he went somewhere in Jerusalem, it's here. This is the main temple entrance into the, the, the temple complex. Right? So, um, and we'll talk about historical evidence, archaeological evidence for the existence of Jesus in just a minute. But if he's a historical person, this is the one place he would have been. And you can pay, you can buy a ticket and you can go stand on these steps, and that's the place to go. The southern end of the temple, the steps leading up into it. Every place else, we don't know. Everybody will claim that he does all this stuff. This is the one place that we know hasn't moved, right? It's still there. Then we have the triple gate. Okay, so we have the southern end, you have a double and a triple gate, and this is what they look like today, by the way. This isn't a reconstruction. So I, I mentioned they've been walled up, they're just completely walled up. Um, I mentioned Mikvah earlier. Here's a, here's a Herodian Mikvah. Um, they're basically the precursors to baptistries or for baptism, but the practice of um, immersing oneself in water for religious purposes uh, is still practiced today. We mentioned by all, by all three Western faiths. Um, but this whole idea of John the Baptist out baptizing people, right, for immersing them in water, wasn't some invention that he just thought of, right? Um, the Jews have been doing this before in Mikvahot. And many scholars argue that this partition that you see going down the middle was some kind of way of separating people, unclean people going in from clean people coming out. That's, that's the theory at least. But this is a mikvah uh, not too far from the Jerusalem temple. Again, we find structures like this at Qumran as well, uh, near where they found all the Nancy scrolls and, and elsewhere. You should know what a mikvah is. It's a Jewish ritual bath, and we find them on the southern end of the temple. And this is all Herodian Jerusalem. This is Robinson's Arch. Now keep in mind, we're looking north. We're on the southwest corner of the temple. When we have our day of the virtual Jerusalem temple, when we do the Umayyad period, uh, we'll look at the Herodian temple, and then we'll look at the Umayyad expansion to the Temple Mount. Um, you'll see this corner. Um, we had, we, and we know this from the archaeological remains, there used to be an entrance on the southwest end that was just a staircase that came down to this region. The, the city of David would have been where you are. So you'd be sitting in the city of David looking up, 
then you could just walk up this and walk up the main steps that we saw over here, the temple steps on the southern end over here, and you can get up into the temple now. That way. Now, what's left of Robinson's Arch? Not much. Can you see that? Did you, did you, would you mind hitting the light one? Can you guys see this thing here? Um, they noticed when they were uh, excavating, this used to be, you know, dirt used to be up to here. So as they're coming down, they find these little rocks jutting out kind of at an angle. They're all coming down, and you got these rocks, I should do this, kind of shooting out at an angle, and they broke off. They said, ah, this used to be an arch. So they got up there, they did their math, their tray, right? They, they did their geometry, and they figured out where it would have come down. They dug over here, and sure enough, there was a ramp and steps. So this here used to be shops. And they built an arch over the shops so that they could get up into the temple and not mess with the commercial stuff. That's, that's here next to the temple. So they saw that Robinson was the guy's name who found it, so they call him Robinson's Arch. Um, I, talked, I, I mentioned that they excavated a lot along this western wall. This is the southwest corner here. Um, it closely resembles the Temenoi, or the sacred areas, with the podium surrounded by porticos and freestanding temple in the center. The descriptions we have of um, the way that this was, hang on, I got your little, it's 80 feet, it's an animation. Um, um, it basically, it, it matches the descriptions that we have, as well as the descriptions of other temples at the time. It was about 172,000 square yards, which is about 15 football fields. Again, you can go up there, you can't go, unless you're Muslim, you can't go into the Dome of the Rock or the Al-Aqsa Mosque anymore, but you can still go up on top and you can walk around. It's a massive, massive place up there. Uh, uh, those of you who have been to the Foro Romano, the Roman Forum in, in Rome, uh, where the Colosseum and all that stuff is, it's about twice the size of that. So this place is big. I mean, it looks small because we keep showing it on a little screen here, but it's a big place. Um, the retaining walls were about 80 feet above the street. So think of an eight-story building. That's how tall Herod built this, this retaining wall. And some of the largest stones are 40 feet long and over 100 tons. So how far is 40 feet? Is this room 40 feet wide? That's 40 feet. 30 feet is 10 yards, right? Who plays football? Is this a, this is a little longer than a first down? What's 10 yards? About right here? Okay, so yeah, it's about, this is about 40 feet. So just imagine a stone, a single cut stone, one block from here to there. It's massive. It's massive. It's 100 tons, right? And they're just carrying one stone and setting it down. It's a big stone. Never underestimate what you could do with expendable slave labor. <laughs> <laughs> this guy would just employ or use slaves and build massive things to himself, or in this case, for the Jerusalem Temple. That's a quote. I didn't make up that quote, by the way. That's on one of those. He has one of those fake, uh, success, those fake accessories. You know those accessories like motivation or endurance, and it's got like an eagle flying, and gives you something really nice. And then there's some fake ones, that are like failure, right? <laughs> Sometimes your only role in life is to show others what not to do, like that. <laughs> I, I love those things, anyways. I'll put them on my face. Okay.
We mentioned the southwest corner. I'm going to back up two slides here. We know that we mentioned here on the southwest corner, or that's north up there, southwest corner of the Temple Mount. Um, we found down at the bottom this inscription. Okay. And the inscription literally says, whoops, basically, uh, for the place of the trumpeting of, and it breaks off. Okay. And what we think, and here, there's, a, there's a replica of it sitting where they found it, uh, underneath the south, remember the Romans, spoiler alert, the Romans are going to come in and knock all this stuff down. Okay. But they found this stone, which is obviously carved, has a nice little inscription, what they, uh, for the, basically for the place of the trumpeting of the, and would have been when they would have blown the shofar for the Sabbath. So at the end of the day, at the end of, remember, uh, days in the Near East start uh, on the night before. There's three stars in the sky the night before is the beginning of the Sabbath. So Friday afternoon, everybody goes home. As soon as you see three stars, as soon as the sun goes out, it's Shabbat. Basically, it's Saturday, and that goes through until sundown the next night. Okay, so days start, they don't start at midnight, they start at sundown the night before. Uh, this is where they would have stood to blow the shofar, and then that would signal the, the beginning of Shabbat and their Sabbath, and then they would blow it again and signal at the end of it. Well, this is where they stood to blow that place. And when we look at the, the virtual temple, I'll show you where that is, where it is in the relationship. So we knew that there was a place where they stood and kind of looked out over the city of David. <coughs> blow, the, blow the trumpet to indicate the Sabbath. Um, there's a large citadel. It's attributed, like the pools are attributed to Solomon. Um, they are not. They were built by the Hasmoneans. Here we have this thing called the citadel of David that appears to have been built during the Herodian period. Again, keep in mind, Herod, there were times when people came after him. He did something they didn't like. So he built a lot of the places that he could, to where he could retreat. Um, here's what we think the rest of it looked like. Um, so you have the palace and the theater. You can see there. The hair right in the front. There's our close-up of the theater. And then here's a close-up of the palace. So Herod spent or no expense, and there's different... Um, Building techniques, architectural styles that Herod the Great used when he built things in Jerusalem, he would use those same architects, those same builders when he would build things, for instance, in Jericho, uh, or at the Herodian, or these other places we're going to look at in just a second. Um, one of the things you should know uh, is the Burnt House. You can visit this if you go to Jerusalem today. This is a house from about 66 to 70 CE that was burnt to the ground when the Romans put down the revolt, the Jewish revolt, uh, and, the, and it was kept right there. So they burned it to the ground, and as archaeologists, I mean, it's unfortunate for the people living there at the time, but as archaeologists, we love this, because anytime something burns to the ground and is sealed, that's called a sealed context, and so now we can dig down in there, and anything we find, we know it was right up until that period of destruction. So they've gone through and excavated, and you can see cups and bowls, this is what life was like at, in about 66 to 70 uh, CE. You can go visit the burnt, it's called the burnt house. Here you go. So you've got a little basin or a cup with handles on it, right? The, the early coffee mug, free coffee. And uh, 
big basin in the ground, uh, putting water in there. Again, we're looking towards the north. So here's kind of the modern, what it looks like in modern time. But you're looking, City of David, looking north, Dome the Rock, sitting where the temple was. And you can see the triple gate here, walled up. Um, you can see the temple steps here, Robinson's Arch here, Western Wall, right there. Um, the Siloam Pool said to be at least built or expanded. Um, and this is just, this is on the southern end, southern and eastern uh, side uh, of the city of David in the modern village of Sodan. Uh, it's a controversial dig. Ronnie Wright's digging here now, but it's a controversial dig because it's, it, it has uh, resulted in some Palestinian homes being taken down. Right, so Palestinians who are already accusing the Israelis for expanding and building what they are, the Israelis are building into the to eastern Jerusalem. Um, in the name of archaeology for Israel, they're tearing down Palestinian homes, which the Palestinians are saying, perhaps rightly so, of you can't use archaeology as a weapon to get people out of East Jerusalem. Um, all that we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. All that is saying that's where this is. You can see the Palestinian village of Salon, they're on the cliff right behind you. They're digging right in the middle of, of where this is now. But this is the uh, the Siloam pool that is that the Hezekiah's tunnel once went to, and then um, you have a, a miracle of Jesus taking place, or something said to take place here at this. Um, Josephus wrote that Jer uh, Jerusalem had a hippodrome, right? Your horse races, Ben Hur esque type thing. Um, this is what we think it would have looked like if reconstructed. This again, this isn't real. This is a reconstruction. I'll try to differentiate between when something's authentic and when something's a reconstruction. So it's got all the all the port, uh, pieces, parts of a regular Roman city. Antonia Fortress would have been a uh, Roman kind of uh, fortress or garrison there at the time. Rome liked to keep an eye on its subjects, kind of the ultimate big brother. So you know, you put some troops there, and then if a revolt breaks out, you've got some troops that can run out and um, put down the, the revolt if needed. And then, of course, we've already shown you pictures of the temple complex in Jerusalem. Now, I, I bring this back up here to show you. You see this wall going around outside here? On the wall that separates uh, Gentiles from Jews, we actually found this inscription in Greek. What it says is, essentially, no man of another nation, no foreign, no Gentile, is to enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which will immediately follow. Basically, if you're not Jewish and you come past this point, just expect to die. And then we have evidence of it. So we have literary evidence that says there was a... a in fact, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament is accused. One of the accusations made against the Apostle Paul is, you brought a Gentile past the barrier. Okay, we don't know whether he did or not. We know that there was a barrier. So you have, again, that doesn't prove that Paul existed or any of it, but it, but it proves that there was a barrier there. There was a separation between Jews and Gentiles. Yeah? That's it. The question is, how can you tell if you're Jewish or not? I would hate to be the person who had to check. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, uh, 
knowing what needs to be done for males to to become Jewish, let's just say I'm glad we have ID cards. Today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, the whole the whole modern concept of uh, what's it called, the racial profiling, it, it just they didn't care in the ancient world. If you didn't look like us, out you go. And again, we still have that problem today. But I think we're getting better at it, but it's still a problem. Gentile barrier was before the woman barrier, though? Yeah, women could go, Jewish women could go beyond. So, how would they check if it was Gentile women? <laughs> <laughs> the way you dress, the way I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. But, you know, if you want to do a paper on that. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to do a paper on how to check. <laughs> Again, I like to see evidence. I'm a big believer in evidence. I don't necessarily want pictures in the paper. Okay. Uh, we already looked at the Western Wall. We looked at some of the stones. I just want to show you again. These things are massive. Still used today um, for worship. Let's look at a place called Beit Sha'an. Beit Sha'an. It's another very, very Greek style, very Roman style city. It too has um, a. Um, a beautiful, here I got a close up over here, uh, a beautiful theater that you can go to. By, by the way, basically, if you ever go to Israel, Palestine to visit on a tour, go to Benchon. It's Disneyland. This is Disneyland, archaeologically Disneyland. I mean, it's just a, this beautiful, beautiful town. There's so much stuff there. It takes you almost a whole day to do it, but um, just go see Benchon. Um, I mean, like, it's got a main street, you know, it's got the Roman style, the cardos. What's the cross street? A decamanus, cardinal decamanus. Um, it's got uh, you know reflecting pools. Just a beautiful example of a Roman city. And the idea is that um, that Jerusalem may have looked a lot like this under Herod the Great as well. Again, a lot of Jerusalem is underneath things and like people's houses, and you can't go digging up to find it. So that's one of the problems. Whereas Beth Sham, um, they've been able to excavate quite a bit there. This is Caesarea, Caesarea. This is on the coast, on the Mediterranean coast. So name all the beautiful cities on the Mediterranean coast. Right? You have you know, some of the Greek islands and some Roman, you know, the Amalfi coast. And these are all Mediterranean cities. And Caesarea, right? I, I feel they're here on the Mediterranean coast. And here they found Caesarea. Uh, Herod the Great spent a lot of time building up Caesarea. Um, in fact. I was in Israel in 1999. They, they found this theater in Caesarea and they refurbished it. And we're, we're standing on the ocean here looking back at the theater. So the theater actually opens you know, onto the ocean. And um, they were setting up for Lord of the Dance. Remember Lord of the Dance? This is 99. So they were, they, were, they were setting up for Lord of the Dance. And Pearl Jam was played there recently, I, I read. So it, it, um, they still use this as a theater. Buy tickets and you can sit your seat. So you know, the Greek is nice, and Hollywood Bowl is nice, but you know, Caesarea, ancient, 2,000-year-old, built by Herod the Great, watching Pearl Jam play. They're old stuff, hopefully. Um, that's like, yeah, and then of course, everything, anything that sticks up in the air in Israel doubles as a military tower of some sort. So they don't put cell phones. That's the other joke is 
all, all uh, Israelis and Palestinians have at least two cell phones. It's because it's, they, they, they're such a new state that they don't bother. And they do have landlines, but it's such a new state that they just went straight to mobile technology. It's one of the most cellular, cellularly enabled towns, both, both uh, the West Bank and Gaza and, and Israel. Yeah, everything is six. It's like around here. If you look at LA, every all the big mountains, all of them sticks up the highest has a cell phone tower or some kind of military communication line. Um, Seats about 35 to 4,000 4, people. Um, there was also a hippodrome there. You can actually walk to it. They left part of it unexcavated. So this is what it looks like before they got there. Here's what they found underneath it. Just a long horse race track right in front of the ocean, kind of where the beach would be. You're sitting on the steps and you're watching the horses and the ocean breeze coming up. And then, of course, water is always, always, always an issue. So Herod the Great made sure to spend a lot of time developing uh, uh, raised uh, waterways, aqueducts. So at Caesarea Maritima, now I say Caesarea Maritima because there's also a Caesarea Philippi up by modern-day Bunnies. Um, but Caesarea Maritima has even just, this is constructed, people having to build this, right? So these are jobs for folks all over the place. So this way he could bring fresh water to the beach. And it's still there. You can, go, you can go see it today. I mentioned that Herod the Great also built palaces for himself. He did this a lot. He built, uh, built one in Wadi Kelt in Jericho, and he also built the Herodian. Herodian. And the Herodian was actually kind of this big anthill of a mountain. It's kind of this natural anthill, which he built up and then went down in the center of and carved out a palace. So it looks like a volcano, right? It's this, it's this huge mountain. And it went up to the top and carved down into it and built this palace. And it has a little synagogue, it has a triclinium, it has his palace, and then underneath it, it has uh, cisterns. You can walk down into it, down, 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 and it collects all the water. So that when it got, when people really got mad at him and they kind of drove Herod out of town, this is near Bethlehem, just outside of Bethlehem, just, just to the south of Jerusalem. He could make his way down here, take up refuge in Herodian. He's got crops, he's got water, doesn't need a thing, he's got his servants there, and he could just hang out there until all the tensions died down and he could go back to Jerusalem. And he had this at Masada, he had this at Wadi Kelt, and he had a lot of these. So he wasn't the most popular guy. They hated him. And yet he always knew when, you know, how far he could push him before he, he could let up and then, and then have him come back. Yeah. Question? Question? The Herodian. Herodian is an example of something. So, let's ask the question. Was Herod the Great a good or bad king? Well, he accommodated the Jews in many ways. He didn't defile the temple when he was besieging Jerusalem. Remember, he, he had to come in and take Jerusalem. So he didn't defile the temple like Pompey did. Um, he allowed Jews to select their own high priest. Now, they had to go through a primary and he picked all three primary candidates. But he, they at least got to, they got to feel like they were choosing their own high priest, subject to his approval. He even married a Hasmonean princess, Marianne. Remember the Hasmoneans who were in control of kind of the last vestige of an independent uh, 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 Jewish state? He even married her. I think he later killed her, but at least he married her, which is a way that kind of married <laughs> her um, He offered all kinds of relief during famine, right? So. You're, you're trying to at least appease and, 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 and uh, serve the people that you're, you're ruling. 
He would put inanimate objects, not his portrait, on coins, so no graven images on coins. He avoided building pagan temples in heavily Jewish areas, which is a nice way of saying what? He built pagan temples. He had no problem appeasing Rome. He built these things called um, uh, temples to Caesar, Augustanus. Uh, three famous ones. Uh, one at Caesarea Maritima, where we were just looking. Uh, another one at, uh, well, I think it's Omrit, just by Bonnius, and just outside of Bonnius. And these were pagan shrines to, to Augustus, right? But he wouldn't build them in heavily Jewish areas, like in and around Jerusalem. So he was at least trying to be sensitive. And of course, we already talked about he employed numerous Jewish workers as builders. <coughs> but they always, always hated him. Why? They considered him to be half Jewish, Idumean, and he was working for the man, specifically the rogue man. Right? This is a great essay question, by the way. Print it out. So Herod the Great was a good king in many, many ways. But he was also paranoid, working for the Romans, killed anybody that got in his way. But the economy was good, so they tolerated him. Question, Jeff. Was the title Herod the Great himself? I would like to think so. I think that was a, a name given to him. But, you know, like many things, a lot of times the names given to us come at the suggestion of us. You know, guys who have nicknames that really wanted a certain nickname. Sting, right? Sting. Right? What's Sting's real name? Anybody know? It's, it's some. Okay, I don't want to make no Sting. Sting. Yeah, Gordon, Gordon something? Gordon Sumner? Yeah. Would you guys mind calling me Sting? You know, this Ben Kirby has a great sketch on how Sting got his name. If you're like, oh. Um, no, I think that's just what we do all the time. All right. Let me show you, now that we've talked about the Romans, now we've talked about Herod the Great, in our remaining four minutes here, let me show you the archaeological evidence we have for the existence of Jesus, okay? Ready? There it is. <laughs> now, let me say a quick word about evidence and historicity. We already talked about this in um, David and Solomon. Remember we talked about it in David and Solomon? Okay. A boat that was discovered on the shore of the Sea of Galilee is not evidence of the existence of Jesus. It's the evidence of that there was a boat on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Just because the Bible says that the disciples and Jesus sailed in a boat on the Sea of Galilee doesn't mean that that was his boat. Okay? Or, Genosar, you don't need to know that. Or an ossuary that has the name Yeshua on the side of it. Right? With a faked inscription, by the way. It's a fake. It's a fake. It says Yaakov bar Yosef the Yeshua, basically Jacob or James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Part of that inscription was faked, added on to try to make it look like it was James, <coughs> brother of Jesus. Jesus had a brother named James. Um, it's a fake inscription. But just because you find an ossuary with the name of Yeshua on it, which is like finding a tombstone with the name Tom on it, saying, well, that's my uncle, that's Tom. You know, that's, that's my, my cousin Tom. Not necessarily. There could be more than one person named Tom. 
Joshua is like being named Jose in Los Angeles. There's, there's more than one of them. Or being like named Matthew. Or like being named, you know, any, any common, what are the ten common names? It's like being named Joshua in Los Angeles today. Okay? A tomb that James Cameron says is where they found an ossuary that has the name Martha in it is not the family tomb of Jesus. It's a tomb with a thing that says Martha in it. Especially when the, the ossuary that says Yeshua doesn't have the remains of a crucified person in it. This is the only evidence ever to come out of Jerusalem of a crucified person. And it came from an ossuary that said Yehonatan, Jonathan. Okay? So yes, did the Romans crucify people? Yes. Is the discovery of an ankle bone with a nail through this is a reconstruction over here. Is this is what they found. Is evidence of an ankle bone with a nail through it proof that Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem? No. Somebody was crucified, somebody named Jonathan. Okay? Is a shrine built where Constantine's mom says she had a vision that Jesus was buried? Proof that Jesus existed? No. It's proof that somebody thought that's where he was buried and they built a shrine there. Why do I show you all this? I want to make this point and then I'll let you go. There is absolutely no archaeological evidence for the existence of Jesus. That doesn't mean he didn't exist. Right? We have no evidence rule of for Solomon, right? doesn't mean he didn't exist. We have literary evidence that says he existed. We have evidence that people believed that he was a prophet or a rabbi or a teacher or even a savior. We have evidence, we do have archaeological evidence that describes the descriptions of Jerusalem and Palestine at the time the Bible was written, or at the time of Jesus, were somewhat accurate. A lot of the things described in the Bible, we have archaeological evidence that supports it, but there is no archaeological evidence for the existence of Jesus. All we have is evidence that people thought he existed, that people believed in what he said, what others said about him. And I want to make that point very clear, because every time, every once in a while on the news you'll hear, this proves that Jesus, and, and no it doesn't. And, and when we find proof that Jesus existed, I'll be the first one to tell you. Issues of whether somebody is or is not God, or is or is not Jesus, is an issue of faith. Archaeologists don't deal with issues of faith. It's not me making fun of Jews, Christians, or Muslims. We just don't deal with whether or not somebody's God. We deal with whether or not the evidence is in the ground for some claim. And sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. Okay. Um, yeah. I'll leave you with this. Um, is the absence of evidence evidence of absence? It's the question that we asked at the beginning. It's the question we're going to continue to ask. Thank you.